Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Emma of Normandy. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. Biggie today. It's Emma time. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I'm, I'm ready. Good. I've got my tea. Yep. Let's go. Biography. So Emma was born, we don't know exactly when. Mm-hmm. Norman's sources, rather like the Saxons, are pretty sketchy about when children are born. Norman sources? Indeed, because she's Emma of Normandy. Of course, yeah. Uh, it's, it's likely sometime between 980 and 990, so we're guessing about 985. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, and she is the daughter of Richard the Fearless. Mm, good name. And Gunor. Mm. And she is our first proper foreign consort. Um, that's excluding Sigrid the Haughty, who was sort of a whole foreign affair because Sven Fortbeard was a foreign. Uh, yeah. So in yeah. terms of a Saxon king marrying mm. a foreign princess, mm. this is our first one. And uh, one thing before we get going, um, we've often not known very much about the consorts. There's not a lot of information, contemporary sources mm. writing about them. We have to fill in lots of blanks. For Emma, we have a thing called the Encomium Mi Reginae. Brilliant. Uh, she commissions her own history book. Yeah, you see, this is what we need now. It's what you need. Not strictly a biography, but a focus very much on her dynasty and her importance. Probably aimed, actually, at more of a contemporary audience rather than uh, just posterity. But it's a very useful source that means we do know more about Emma. Okay, good. On the other hand, the author is openly flexible with the truth. Mm. Oh, he's not going to say... Teenage years, covered in acne. (laughs) 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 Wasn't much use to anyone. And also didn't include when she was born. Didn't include when she was born. Minor detail. I suppose that's a given, isn't it? You're born. Yeah, offs. Normandy is actually a relatively new place. It's a duchy in France, but it only comes into existence in 911. It's about 100 years before the period that we're talking about today. Charles III of Francia, France, granted lands along the River Seine to a Viking leader in return for he and his men converting and protecting them against other Viking attacks. This is a chap, the Viking leader, called Rollo. Oh, yeah, hang on. Now, fans of the TV series Vikings yeah. will know this chap because in th- that show he is presented uh, as Ragnar Lothbrok's brother, played by uh, Clive Stanton. And so he is Emma's great-grandfather. Cool. Mm. Cool. Now, over the next century from this uh, beginnings of Normandy, they, they gradually expand their territory, and Normandy ends up becoming the most powerful duchy in Western Europe, particularly under her father and then her brother, Richard II, Duke right. of Normandy. They've suddenly got much more more sort of Western names, haven't they? I mean, well, Christian that's the names. other thing. They're proud of their Viking origins, and they do sympathise with Viking raiders, but they convert to French language and French culture and customs very quickly. Right. So it's not really a Viking duchy within France. They very quickly become part of the French setup, mm. albeit perhaps a little more martial in character. Yeah, right. Okay, so best of both worlds here. Indeed. Now, we don't know really anything at all about Emma's upbringing. There are no anecdotes about her. Mm. But it's very likely that her mother would have been a key influence. This was Gunor, and she is Danish-born. Right. So again, we're bringing that Viking culture back mm. into mm. Normandy with her. Um, probably imbued her children with an understanding of Scandinavian culture and indeed language. Right. So Emma probably spoke Danish as well as oh. French. And she's a very powerful figure in Normandy, uh, the mother. She witnessed charters. She was a regent for her son, so Emma's oh, wow. brother. And with her son, she also commissioned a history of Normandy. So you can see the inspiration there that uh. Emma later on does it for her own dynasty. Yeah, that's much more useful, though, isn't it, really? Yeah. Of Normandy, that's mm. cool. Now, in terms of Normandy and England, mm. um, relations actually seem to have initially been quite good. Athelstan was said to have had uh, pretty good relations with William Longsword, cool mm. name, yeah, very. in the 930s, oh. son of Rollo. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, but increasingly, relations are very tense because the Normans provide support to Vikings who are raiding England. So oh, that's they'll raid good. England and then pop back, safe harbour and ruin, yeah. ruin, and then pop back again to raid England. 
Oh, that's no good at all. No, the English aren't very happy about this. Yeah. So Ethelred the Unready was the king, and we see that tensions are really ramping up mm. with the Vikings. So actually, in 991, Pope John the Fifteenth actually brokered a peace treaty between England and Normandy because mm. things were getting so bad. It required Duke Richard to stop providing safe harbour for Viking raiders. Yeah, that's well, just stop doing that. Hmm. And the English are going, yeah. That's yeah. what we said. <laughs> yeah. But it seems that they don't. Well, oh, right. So in 1001, Ethelred actually sends a raid to Normandy, perhaps trying to kidnap Richard. What? Ethelred? Ethelred, yeah. That's most unlike him, isn't it? Fails, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. But nevertheless, there is a desire now for both parties to try and sort this out. It's not really in Normandy's interest to have mm. England invading them. Yeah. So in 1002, there's an opportunity for an accord, and one which is better than what the Pope managed to do. Ethelred's first consort, Elfgiva of York, mm. seems to have died. And perhaps more significantly, his mother, Elfrith, also has died. More significant because his mother probably was still the one considered the queen. Right. Because they still could only really allow one queen oh, at yeah. one time. Okay, yeah. So that means there's an opening in England, both for Ethelred to marry and for the bride to be a queen. Clever, yeah. So, negotiations take place, and we have a marriage between Ethelred of England and Emma of Normandy. And this is the unready, isn't it? This is Ethelred the unready, indeed. So, the hope is that when Ethelred is married to Emma, the yeah. Duke's sister, Normandy will now actually stop aiding and abetting the Vikings, because they yeah. now actually have an investment yeah. in England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for Normandy, they're obviously hoping that England won't then need to been knocking on the door with swords and uh, confusingly she actually officially takes on an english name oh she becomes known in official documents as Elfgiver. oh not another though probably named after ethelred's saintly grandmother rather than his first wife oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but imagine that conversation i promise it's nothing to do with her <laughs> yeah. oh all the names they had i say all the names they had i've only heard about four in conversation it's probably still known as emma or mm. emma as they probably would have said it at the time. And actually, in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it uses both names. So it says the Lady Elfgiva Emma. Hmm. So well, it's only really when she's signing charters and that sort of thing yeah. that she's Elfgiva. Now, in terms of her relationship with Ethelred the Unready, William of Malmesbury claimed that they didn't like each other at all. What? And were quite what? hostile towards each other. There's no direct evidence for this, but there is quite a fairly large age gap between them. Well, how much are we talking um, about? Somewhere between 15 and 20 years. Oh, that's quite a lot, isn't it? And notoriously, Ethelred is not mentioned in the encomium at all. Whoa. It's as if he didn't exist, which many people have taken to assume that perhaps that was a period of her life that she did not look on fondly. Yeah, I'd say. Mm. Imagine if you got one of these um, celebrity books out for Christmas, like Victoria <laughs> Beckham doesn't mention <laughs> David Beckham. Yeah. Oh, dear. However, unlike her predecessor, she was crowned and anointed as queen. Mm. She does witness charters, usually above the bishops, and either just before or just after her stepsons. Oh, that is good then. But there's a lack of detail of what she was doing in this period, and it was a very difficult period for England. We see a lot of divisions at court. Mm. It must have been a very difficult situation for her as a young and foreign queen coming mm. into mm. with all of this going on. The major issue at the time, of course, was increasingly intensive raids from the Vikings. Mm. Uh, we have Sven Forkbeard, King of Denmark, leading a major attack in 1004 yeah. to 05. Thorkel the Tall. No, I haven't heard him before, have we? Uh, 1009 to 12, just landed and was just harrying England for a good three years or so. And then in 1013, Sven launches an invasion of conquest, exploits divisions within England, particularly in the north, where he marries his son, Canute, to a woman called Elfgiver of Northampton, mm. who we knew was part of that very powerful mm. um, sort of Mercian Northern dynasty. Uh, and then on the 25th of December, Christmas Day, Sven is acknowledged King of England. What is it with invaders and Christmas Day, eh? It's a lovely time. Mm. So, Emma and Ethelred, of course, are in a bit of a tricky position. So, Emma and her sons flee to her brother's court at Normandy. Oh, yeah. And a few weeks later, they are joined by Ethelred. Oh, this is important, isn't it? So, you know, some benefit at last to the yeah. uh, Normandy lines. Yes. However, luck comes to play for them because a few weeks later, Sven Forkbeard dies. Yay! 3rd of uh, February. The Danes in England support his son, Canute, but the English nobles send for Ethelred. Oh, this is the bit where we wondered how they slinked away and all that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Ethelred and Emma come back to England, and then Canute is forced to retreat to Denmark mm. for reinforcements. Mm. 
However, there are divisions within the royal family, which we discussed last time on Eldgith. Uh, Ethelred's oldest surviving son, Edmund Ironside, had stayed in England during all of this period. He doesn't Mm. go into exile with them. Seems to be acting independently of his father. He marries the widow of a man that his father actually has murdered. Oh, yeah. And the widow herself had been imprisoned by Ethelred. In a way, they are helped by the fact that Canute in 1015 invades with about 10,000 men. Helped. Oh, yeah, because he goes back to his father, doesn't he? Yes, it's not a great situation, admittedly, but it does at least reconcile father and son that there is a greater Mm. threat facing them both. So Edmund heads back to his father in London. Gets them talking, like the emergency cabinet in the Second World War. Exactly. Mm. But unfortunately for Ethelred, it's all come a little bit too late, because on the 23rd of April, 1016, he dies. And that's the end of Emma as a consort. And that is the end of Emma's consortship. Now, it's not clear exactly where she was. There's some debate about whether she goes back to Normandy at this point, but more likely is that she remains in London. Oh, hang on. You're not going to say she did the old in the wine or something? I'm not suggesting that, but if you want to... uh... Well, hang on. Let me load my bell because uh, we still (laughs) haven't bought one. So get ready, team. Well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> that was falling. I'll boost it up and post. <laughs> Edmund Ironside is now king. So at this point, she is technically queen's stepmother. Well, how do we score that? We don't give her any points for this. Okay. But it's an interesting, uh, interesting mm. relationship. Now, there's some debate about what her relationship with Edmund was at this point. Some historians have assumed that it's quite a bad one. So her status as queen perhaps made Edmund see her, and indeed her son, Edward, as a threat. Yeah. Because she's got an anointed status that his mother didn't have. Trouble's brewing. On the other hand, Edmund gets a very good press in the encomium. Okay. And remember that Ethelred isn't mentioned at all. Yeah, yeah. That's true. They are actually pretty much the same age. So they perhaps have a bit more in common than Ethelred would have done. And she probably would have seen him as the best chance of protecting her and her sons from the Vikings. Yeah, at least initially. You've got the Vikings besieging the city he's probably your best chance of Yeah, definitely, because Edward, her Edward, would be a child. Yeah, he's somewhere between 11 and 13. Mm, No good. However, it doesn't ultimately go very well for Edmund. He manages to relieve the siege of London, then fights a series of skirmishes against Canute, but is defeated in the Battle of Assendon. So he and Canute briefly split the kingdom, but uh, thereafter Edmund dies on the 30th of November, 1016, at which point Canute is declared king of all England. What does she do then? Well, so she is now no longer even Queen's stepmother. No. Well, what happens is that Canute decides he might have a little bit of an interest in Emma. Really? There are a couple of accounts of what takes place. According to Emma's version, the encomium, uh, Canute sends messengers far and wide across Europe to find a suitable bride. And there's one right on her doorstep. Well, she claims that she's in Normandy, so in Gaul he finds the most distinguished of the women of her time. Mm. And he sends her various gifts trying to woo her, but Emma refuses to marry him unless he agrees that their sons would outrank those by some other woman. Because he already has sons by... Elf Giver of Northampton. Oh, so yeah. she's saying, if we marry, you've got to promise that our sons will take precedence over your other ones. And what are their sons' names? Does it help or will that complicate things? Uh, his sons' names are Sven and Harold Harefoot. <laughs> yeah, we know him, right? We do. Okay. This is, this is all coming together, Graham. The alternative is that she was actually probably in London rather than Normandy. And uh, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that Canute fetched her for his wife. (laughs) (laughs) Right, okay. Um, Probably it's maybe somewhere between the two. It's quite common for a conquering king in Scandinavia to assert their dominance over a new country by marrying the widow of the previous king. Mm. That's indeed Sigurd the Haughty was previously married to Eric of Sweden before she marries Mm. Sven. But in 1017, Canute is trying to set himself up as a model Saxon king. Mm. He's trying to appeal to the Saxons and public opinion. It's not quite like the Norman Conquest, where it's very top-down. He wants a bit more right. involvement. So he may well have negotiated with Emma. They probably did agree terms. And he's then saying to everyone, look, my wife isn't... It's not only a bit like the last one, it is the last one. Everything's normal. Exactly. Don't worry. You've still got the same queen. Yeah. Isn't that just- good? Just me in charge, that's all. Probably most importantly, it prevents Normandy from being tempted to invade England on behalf of her sons by Ethelred, yeah. Edward and Alfred, which they might have done because they think, well, we're now invested in 
these guys as future kings of England. Mm. But if Emma's married to Canute, they're like, oh, but so we yeah. can't really attack England when Emma's the queen. Yeah, absolutely. So he's kind of managed to rule out all of these potential difficulties by marrying Emma. Gosh, that is clever. From her perspective, obviously she regains her position as queen. Yeah. Also, this probably ensures the survival of her sons, Edward and Alfred, who are sent to Normandy in exile. But it just excludes them from the reign, then. Canute is quite choppy-choppy when it comes to uh, dynastic rivals. Probably a good good price, then. However, the most ins- uh, significant thing, perhaps, for us at this point is it means that Emma is the first and, indeed, only woman in English history to be queen consort to two different monarchs. Rex fact. Ethelred the Unready and Canute. Brilliant. It's also quite ironic because the whole point of Ethelred marrying Emma was to try and oh, see yeah. off the danger of Viking uh, invasion. <laughs> and he dies and she marries a Viking. And she ends up marrying a Viking conqueror. So it probably starts as quite a pragmatic match from both of their perspectives. No. But it does seem to perhaps become something of a more genuine partnership. And they're similar age now? Well, they're not, but actually it's now the other way round. Emma's probably about 32 and Canute is about 22. I oh, see, I had Canute at about 45, 50. Oh, no, he's very young. Yeah, right. Very young. He's like 19 when he comes over with his father, the initial... Of course, it was his father, wasn't it? So Emma's got more experience, not only of England, but also of just ruling, of Mm. ruling England as well. She knows the country much better than he does. And because of her mother, Gunnar, being Danish, Mm. she understands Danish culture. She probably also can speak the language. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they actually chat. Oh, that's, this makes much more sense. It's a much better match, really, than it was with Ethelred. Because before, when you said that, I was like, what? And yeah. now you, when after <laughs> yeah. he summoned her, he lays all the things down. She goes, okay. Yeah, that was, that was actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and her status is very high under Canute. Uh, she shares in his coronation in 1017. There are a series of sort of reconciliation ceremonies aimed at appeasing Saxon opinion, right. which she's quite prominent. And she has very much a sort of parallel role in the governance of the kingdom, whether it be religious patronage, national affairs. They're very much seen as a pair. Mm. not quite William and Mary but it's right. the Queen is definitely on a much more elevated level than what she's been before and she's also not just of course Queen Consort of England because Canute has a North Sea Empire oh yes so she she's does. also technically consort for England Denmark Norway and parts of Sweden she is the most powerful woman we've reviewed so far surely very much so her daughter gets married to the heir to be the Holy Roman Emperor what however Unexpectedly, in 1035, things are thrown into disarray when Canute dies. And in the aftermath, we have a succession crisis. Mm. Similar story that we've had with previous Saxon consorts, and you would have thought with Emma's heightened status that everything's fine. She'd sort it all out. But the assumption is that Emma's son by Canute, a Mm. chap called Harthur Canute, Mm. that you nicknamed Half a Canute. Yeah. um, (sighs) The assumption is that he would succeed as king. They've made that agreement. He's been seen in public ceremonies. He's got the gig. I'm going to struggle to see how you could justify anyone else. The problem is that as a child, Canute sends him off to go and basically rule Denmark. Mm. But a few weeks before Canute dies, Norway, which is also in Canute's realms, mm. rebels with a new chap called Magnus. So half the Canute is basically fighting a war with Norway a couple of weeks before Canute dies. Consequently, he is in no position to come back and claim the throne in England because he's busy in Norway. Mm. And he's not the only person claiming the throne because Canute also has one surviving son by Elf Giver of Northampton, Harold Harefoot. Mm. And whereas half the Canute has basically grown up in Denmark and is there and is staying there for the time being, Harold has entirely spent his life in England, mm. probably in the Midlands where his mother is from. Right. And he's the oldest son. And the other complication is that Elfgiver of Northampton is very much still around. Oh, no. Because it's common, as we've seen, for Saxon kings to repudiate their wives. Yeah. But as a Viking, Canute didn't feel like he actually had to bother repudiating her. He'd just take on another wife. Yeah. So he technically never actually repudiates his first wife. He's technically bigamous. What? And Elfgiver of Northampton is a serious threat to Emma. She's the granddaughter of Wolfram that we talked about in the oh, last yeah. episode, the founder of Wolverhampton. We've got this great network of power in Mercia and probably also in Northumbria as well. Very powerful allies. 
Canute obviously trusts her because he uses her. She seems to have been sort of in the north and he goes mm. off to Norway and stuff. She's very powerful and Harold is actually in England and he's got a lot of support because of that support network in the north. What about... There was one more, wasn't it? Edward. Edward is in Normandy and at this point not really too in a young. position to help. He's not too young. He's the oldest of all of them, but oh. he's in Normandy. Harold immediately claims the throne, goes to Winchester and deprives Emma of the treasury, mm. which he had possession of, and he then tries to have himself crowned king. But thankfully for Emma, the Archbishop of Canterbury is on her side and refuses to crown him. That's the technique that they all use, isn't it? If there's a, mm. if there's a succession Even after going the 1066, Henry I. Yeah, runs straight to the treasury. Yeah. So there is a meeting of the Wheatan in Oxford, mm. which is sort of nicely placed on the border of Wessex, Mercia. Yeah. And they have to decide what they're going to do and who is going to rule. Emma is backed by the Archbishop and also Godwin, who is the Earldoman of Wessex and mm. father of Harold Godwinson. Ah. 1066 fame. But Harold's got the support of the nobles from Mercia and Northumbria. Mm. It's very much a split along the old Danelaw line. It's amazing how influential that was. Eventually, they settle on a compromise whereby Harold will be governor on half the Canute's behalf. Mm-hmm. while Emma will protect his interests in Winchester. So it's just a nod to that Emma's still powerful. Yeah. So essentially, they're just going to wait and hope the Hearth of Canute comes back and we'll sort something out. That seems like quite a reasonable place to settle. Except for the fact that Hearth of Canute is not in any rush at all mm. and doesn't come back. Ah. And Elfgiver of Northampton seems to be doing a lot of work to get more and more nobles to pledge their support to Harold instead mm. of Hearth of Canute. And Emma is losing ground. Momentum is against her. God, so it's it's queen versus queen, really, behind the scenes. In desperation, in 1036, she does now turn to her sons in Normandy, Edward and Alfred. Mm. Suggests that they need to come over and help against Harold. But that's almost like a declaration of war, isn't it? Yes, so Edward, they seem to have come separately. Edward does make it to her in Winchester. Alfred goes a different way and is intercepted by Godwin. Now, Godwin was on Emma's side, but he seems to, at this point, have turned to Harold. So Godwin hands Alfred over to Harold Harefoot, who has Alfred's men murdered, and then Alfred is blinded and later dies of his wounds. (sighs) Not this blinding again, that's horrible. Just murders. Yeah. It's a mafia thing. Edward, at this point, of course, heads back to Normandy. And this is really the end of the game for Emma. Harold is acknowledged in 1037 as full king of England, and Emma is cast out into exile to Normandy um, she actually goes to Bruges to Flanders <laughs> on a little mini break <laughs> well yeah <laughs> some people have suggested that this is indicating that perhaps she becomes persona non grata after the fiasco of 1036 of uh, inviting the sons out yeah because know, obviously yeah. they were the Normandy candidates right, yeah more likely though it's because in 1035 her nephew the Duke Robert had died and he'd left his son who was only about seven or eight William Mm. future conqueror oh connections okay. are mm. forming yes they are it's all just sinking into place like a game of tetris so there's a very chaotic minority which basically descends into anarchy so from emma's perspective it's not actually a very safe place to go so she goes to bruges um which is a safer place to be it's also well placed for connections both to edward in normandy and also to half the canute oh, okay so she's still part she's still got a, a big amount in the fight she's still fight. she's not given up she's still mm. fighting here initially she summons Edward in 1038 mm. but he makes clear he doesn't have the resources to invade England and probably after what happened in 1036 he's not really mm. doesn't really trust her mm. but in 1039 Harthur Canute agrees a peace with Magnus of Norway mm. and he's able to come back oh right and he brings with him 62 warships and an army wow this is what Edward and Alfred didn't have but Harthur Canute does yeah but he decides not to invade. What? Oh! Because it turns out that Harold Harefoot is mortally ill and soon to die. Fine. Time to put your feet up and have a have a little drink from your horn cup. Yep, so in 1040, Harold Harefoot dies and Harthur Canute and Emma land at Sandwich in England with 62 warships. Brilliant. Dutch job done. Well, Emma doesn't feel like the job's been done. She's still got a war to fight. So Harold's body is disinterred, beheaded and thrown into a sewer. Mm, that's quite a statement. And she then charges Godwin, her old ally, as being complicit in Alfred's murder. Fair. But he presents Harthur Canute with an incredibly elaborate and magnificent ship, 
<laughs> and so he's let off. <laughs> no, it knows way into exactly. my heart too. Exactly, that would work for you. <laughs> yeah. uh, nevertheless, Emma is now back in power. Her son, Harthal Canute, is king, and she is back at the top of the tree, mm. always witnessing charters immediately after him. Mm. They actually issue one uh, writ jointly. <laughs> and she's now styled as Mater Regis, mother of the king. But Harthal Canute, when he is finally king, is actually very unpopular. Oh. Very autocratic style of rule, very heavy taxation. He's not terribly popular. Oh, dear. So the following year, in 1041, Emma advises him to recall Edward, her other son. On what grounds? Why do you invite your um, closest rival over for a tea? <laughs> Indeed, it does seem a bit surprising. Perhaps they're hoping that, as the you know the old Saxon line, maybe he'll give them a bit of legitimacy and boost the popularity. Mm. Yeah. But it's a very interesting relationship. It's presented in the encomium as a, effectively actually a form of joint rule. Mm. Perhaps even Emma as well, effectively this sort of trinity. Oh, the, he does come over sons. then? He do, yeah, he does come over. Oh, this is lovely. This is the point at which Emma actually publishes the encomium. Mm. 1041. So it's aimed at this court. So she is presenting this version of unity between mm. her, Emma, Edward, oh, Arthur Canute. It's also designed to answer any critics that she may have for her role in the succession crisis that's just been. She's justifying her position mm. and saying, look at how lovely this all is. This is how yeah. it's meant to be. Yeah, I planned this all along. What she didn't plan all along was that the following year, in 1042, Arthur Canute dies aged just 24. But she's got the next one lined up. She was in England, then back to Normandy, through Bruges to uh, Denmark. Whoop! Arthur Canute's back, we're king, bring Edward over, he dies, now Edward's king. Mm. It was like the a way through to the initial plan, right? Well, ultimately it does end up that her eldest son yeah. becomes king of England. Fine. And that perhaps is another reason for bringing Edward over. Maybe it was known that Arthur Canute was ill, and right. again, he doesn't have any children, so maybe they thought, right, we need to get Edward over, you need an heir. Get him prepped. Yeah. yeah. So that's Edward the Confessor. This is Edward the Confessor. So he comes to the throne 38 years old, 26 years after he was exiled. God, that's quite an age. Canute. That time, isn't it? Now, you're saying, well, she'll be very happy about this, mm. but it's sort of clear that she was always fighting more for Arthur Canute to be king. Mm. And Edward was a sort of backup. Mm. Perhaps they don't have such a strong relationship. The following year, after he becomes king in 1043, Edward comes to Winchester with his leading nobles, Godwin, Leofric, and Seward. Godwin? Yeah. The one with, who killed his brother? Yeah. Gave him a boat? Yeah. Well, must have been out of a boat. Yeah. <laughs> Dispossesses Emma of the treasury. No. Again. And also takes all of her lands and treasures away from her. There's no need for that. Various rumours of uh, the motivation for all of this, but most likely really is the fact that they've got a frosty relationship and Emma's holding the treasury while em Edward wanted to be his own man. And she does actually seem to be quite soon afterwards restored to her lands and her um, money. Yeah. Not the treasury. Well, that's all right. And not her old influence. So she is not now signing all the charters and at the top of the tree anymore. She's but no longer a... ruling the country. But that's like... I that's too much of a taste of power maybe her whole thing was to get her son to be king the son is king she's like well, I still want to do all this admin for yeah. you <laughs> no no just it's done don't worry retire because she's going to be quite old at this point she's indeed going to be quite old also there's, maybe she was involved in arranging Edward's marriage to Edith of Wessex which is an interesting one that's Godwin's daughter no mm. more on that next time her last known appearance is in 1045, where she witnesses a charter, which is the last of three times where we have two Saxon queens witnessing. So she seems to have gone into retirement at this point, uh, probably in Winchester, which is where she's based most of her life. And then on the 6th of March, 1052, probably age 67, she has died. But this is an interesting one. She's the first queen since Elswith, the first one we did, to be, married, uh, to be buried with her husband. Since Alfred's? Yeah. Oh, that's nice. And it's also an interesting decision by Edward to marry her with Canute rather than Ethelred, given that Ethelred is his father. Yeah, yeah. So is that a sign of a final break between him and Emma, that he's saying you're part of this dynasty, that not whole... mine? Yeah. Or is it an olive branch to the Anglo-Danish people at court like Godwin, who perhaps see have more of an affinity to Canute than to Ethelred? Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Uh, like the... Um... Because she had a Danish mother, spoke Danish, maybe that was her. She mm. always had that bias. Yeah. I was acknowledging that. 
Anyway, that is the life and rather extensive consortship of Emma of Normandy. Wow. Now I think it's time to review her. Let's go. Battleliness. So with the consort series, what we're looking for is not necessarily full-on military stuff, because they no. don't usually have that role, but we're looking for agency, power, influence, independence, mm. battles, whether they be diplomatic, political, mm. etc. Got plenty of that with Emma. Fantastic. Very powerful and influential queen. Even under Ethelred, she is crowned and anointed and prominent in the charters, which mm. her predecessor was not. But it's with Canute that really see her at the apex of her power, crowned for a second time, top of the charters, if not actually jointly witnessing some charters with Canute. Yeah. Something of a rule in partnership. She's, as we said, parallel to Canute, rather than just the king's wife, that sort of thing. We yeah. do see them almost on a level with each other. And it's queen consort of a North Sea empire. She is the most powerful queen consort before the Norman Conquest. Yeah. And she's probably more powerful than quite a few of the ones after. Yeah, certainly. Now, although she doesn't have her own military battles, she is very much at the centre of the succession battle. Mm. She's actually potentially involved even in 1016. If she's in London, and if she is on Edmund Ironside's side, the point at which he goes off to find an army, but London is besieged by the Vikings... Emma is potentially the most senior royal figure in the city. Yeah. Perhaps she actually is effectively leading the defence of the city. In my mind, she is. It's really, though, 1035 when we have the serious battle for the succession, mm. which is technically between Hartley Knut, Harold and Edward, but mm. in many ways it's between Emma and Elf Giver of Northampton. Yeah, that's what I, yeah, exactly. They're behind all this and they've got their actors doing it for them. Yeah, many people assume that Elf Giver effectively rules for Harold, yeah. who's very young, and likewise Emma mm -hmm. doing so later for Hartha Canute. Weirdly, despite Emma's power, in some ways she's actually in the weaker position mm. in 1035. She's got three sons, all of whom are out of the country. Yeah. Elf Giver has only got one son, and he is in England. And king. And king, and mm. has always been there. And he takes action against her immediately. So the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle relates, Harold sent an order to be taken from Emma, all the best treasure that she could not hold, which King Canute possessed. And she nevertheless abode there continually within the city as long as she could. So he's taken action against her, but she doesn't give in. Yeah, she yeah, keeps yeah. Going. It's yeah. a sort of 10, uh, 1035 version of nevertheless she persisted. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. She's not that throwing in the towel. Tenacity is absolutely my favourite... Uh, What's, what do I mean? Uh, quality? Quality, yeah. She does try to fight back. She questions uh, Harold's legitimacy mm. uh, as a candidate. She is trying to get people on her side, but the momentum, as we saw, was against her. So she does then turn to military means. That's when she calls on Edward and Alfred to come over, and she's hoping that they will be able to mm. influence and take action against Harold. Obviously, that doesn't go terribly well, but at least she is you know, using mm. all of the means at her disposal. But she does ultimately win in 1042. Harthur Canute becomes king. Now, it's a bit disappointing for us that he waited for his brother to die rather than storming in. Yeah. With but the warships. Sensible, but it's it sensible. And he does still have a fleet of 62 warships. And the fact that we see Emma bringing those charges against Godwin, the fact that we see Harold disinterred, beheaded, mm -hmm. chucked in a sewer, I think indicates that Emma was very much prepared to use force. Oh, yeah. And one can imagine the fury she would have wrought had she been able to invade. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. Goodness. Uh, I, yeah, it's annoying that, that this is... We sort of are talking about the men here whenever we're talking about actual action because it feels more like we should be talking... Framing her like a Georgian monarch who actually, though not doing the fighting... Yeah. Is behind the scenes. Well, it's one that's interesting. When I was doing the episode, it was a bit tricky to do because... It almost at times felt like I was just describing his English history mm. for, you know, sort of 30, 40 years. Mm. But the flip side of that is that you cannot tell the story of English history for these 30 or 40 years without Emma. Yeah, She's she is the of it. So of the it. fact that yeah. her story is the national story yeah. isn't because she is diminished and subsumed. It's because that's how important she is. Yeah, like someone like Harold's story 
mm. if told on its own, yeah. doesn't make sense, really. He makes sense as a bit part in her story. And in terms of her agency and putting herself forward oh and out word. there, mm. obviously we've got that, but also biggie for her is that in 1041, as we said, she publishes her own history, the encomium M.I. Reginae. Mm. This justifies her own actions and puts her at the centre of national affairs. It's our first example, really, of a woman in England so actively involved in writing history. Yeah, she writes the history. No mm. wonder, the, you know, the <laughs> yeah, English history at the time. Is she, she not only she has so much control, mm. she controls the narrative. It's it's brilliant, isn't it? And you think previous consorts, we've struggled sometimes even to know their names, mm. and we're piecing together complicated genealogy to try and get some detail of their life. Yeah, Emma commissions her own history book, which is still in print today. I used this for this episode. Her history, her name, her image on the front cover. Yeah, it's amazing, the isn't it? The contrast to what we've had before. That is amazing. And as I said, the encomium published in 1041, it's aimed at the contemporary audience, so it's still part of her power game. It's still part of her way of justifying yeah. her position at court, maintaining her position at She's court. She's winning the information war. Yeah. As Pauline Stafford historian said, it's a political work from a political woman in the thick of politics. Yeah. Against her is the fact that actually she does suffer quite a few defeats along the way. It's not universally successful. Mm. We don't have any details about 1016, so we don't know that she was actually there mm. leading the defence in London. 1035, she had negotiated that her son would succeed Canute, mm -hmm. and then he doesn't. Mm. And you could argue that in many ways she is outplayed by Elfgiver. Elfgiver's the one that manages to get Harold um, on the throne, Emma tried to dismiss her as a mere concubine, but we see letters from her daughter, Gunhild, that indicate Emma was very well aware of how powerful and influential Evgiva was. She complains that she was bribing all of the nobles to support Harold. Mm. 1036 is perhaps her biggest strategic blunder, inviting Edward and Alfred over, mm. when she must have known the situation was dire and that Harold was ahead. We can understand why she'd want them there, but realistically, what were they going to do? if they weren't backed by, you know, Normandy as an army. Yeah, she played that card at the wrong time. And it results in Alfred being captured and murdered. Mm. And ultimately then Harold is declared king, Godwin turns side, and she is forced out to exile. And it's really lucky, in a way, that Arthur Canute comes back because Emma had kind of lost yeah. the battle. But, I mean, she definitely in, in was losing at that moment. But in any game of sport you know if mm. you're you know boxers take punches yeah you're not always in your opponent's half in football or whatever that was the the ebb and flow of the game mm. but she ultimately won the other thing you might say against her is ultimately she does find herself deprived of power in 1043 by edward she is ultimately knocked down but but that's, that's kind of what you might relationships. expect. Yeah. yeah and also as pauline stafford said not all widows required three earls and a king to make them go gracefully <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing measures Emma's power like her leaving of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think of her score for battliness? Massive. Mm. I really do think so. Um I think that we might get complaints because we can't talk about a pitched battle. Yeah. If Hearth Canute had come back to invade and we'd had Emma and Hearth Canute at the head of effectively and a conquering mm. fleet. Like it couldn't be anything other than ten. Lacking that mm. is brings it down a little bit for me. It brings it down for me because it nearly happened. Yeah. And we had that dangled. If it wasn't dangled there, I just think that she's bossed it all the way. And it's really hard still to shake the fact that we're on series three, not series one and two, yeah. where it is different. It's not mm. about the battlefield. Yeah. I think given the chance she'd have... I mean, she took a dead man's head off. Yeah. You can imagine that when Hartle Canute said, well, I think maybe we should just wait, she was going, but I want to fight! <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is or, my battleiness. Or Edward saying, you know, he is, he is dead, mother. I don't care. His <laughs> head is coming off. Okay, I I do, I take your point on, uh, well, all things history related, so I will temper my enthusiasm. <laughs> I mean, I'd never but, want to do that. But not by much. Mm. Nine. Well, oh God, now I say it out loud. I feel like um, I feel like I'm being too Bruno Tollioni and not um enough. What Max? Craig Revelhorn? Yeah, Craig Revelhorn, not Max. Um, <laughs> uh, That's just a name. <laughs> uh, but it is really good, Graham. It's really good. 
Well, I'll stick with nine. I'll leave it to you to mm. temper the overall score as you <laughs> see fit. I'm going to... I mean, I'm still giving her a high score. I think I'm going to give her not much less, but I think I'm going to go eight and a half. Mm. I'm going to come down a bit because she doesn't quite have that battling moment that she nearly had. Mm. And also just a little bit because she does have defeats. And as you said, you know, you've got to have defeats along the way. She's on top at the end. Mm. I mean, yeah, I'm only going down half a mark, really. It's still uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's, still, it's good. still good. So that is 17.5 for battliness. Scandal. There's a sort of moral ambiguity. So there are a lot of people, obviously, like we've said, that are very impressed by her survival mm. story and all of that. But equally, there's sometimes a sense of her being a bit self-centred, quite manipulative, and most controversially, but we will discuss this, a, quote, bad mother. Right. She is very much a purveyor of fake news. Yes. Yeah, her old history, yeah. Yeah, spread lies about Elfgiever being a lowly concubine, suggested that uh, Harold Harefoot was effectively a bedpan baby. Really? So she says that Elfgiever couldn't conceive, so she has a servant girl bringing her baby to dupe Canute into thinking that he'd actually had sons by this woman. Wow. Wow. That's... And this pops up in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, so it's not just that she's putting up, you know, pamphlets and mm. comments below the line. This is <laughs> like going into the official history. Wow. Not just her history. Uh, the encomium, um, as she said, completely omits Ethelred as if he didn't exist. You'd read it thinking that Edward is Canute's son. Yeah, well, it, I, it, I struggled a little. Yeah, well, deliberately yeah. on her yeah. part, confusing you. Uh, we've got the story of Canute wooing her from Normandy when probably she's <laughs> locked up in London. She accuses Harold of forging a letter from her to Alfred and Edward, inviting them to come over. So she tries to sort of deny all responsibility for the death of oh, right. her son. All historians think that she would have contacted them. Confusingly, it's possible that the letter was actually a forgery, but it's a forgery that she created so that she could blame Harold for creating a forged letter. Oh, she's brilliant. She's trying to, she's trying to win. She's trying to. She's playing the game the way of it. It's mm. really good. Now, perhaps the most controversial one. It's a very gendered slant, but there is a sense that she put her own interests ahead of those of her sons, and this is a contemporary criticism that she probably is addressing with the encomium. And also, as we'll see, it's very much a view that seems to have been taken by Edward. Right. Confessor. 1017, as we said, she then marries the man who'd fought her husband, fought her stepson, and sends Edward off into exile for the next 20 years, marrying the man who effectively has taken his throne, because he should now be king by primogeniture. Yeah, and she's then, obviously spends the next 20 years, and then the succession battle, fighting for Hartha Canute to be king. It's only in 1036 that she invites Edward and Alfred over because Harthur Canute is unavailable and even then they have no support and Alfred ends up being murdered. So as Pauline Stafford said, her appeal to them was at best sanguine, possibly self-deluding and at worst politically immoral. Because <laughs> what did she actually expect them to do realistically? Yeah, that was a duff, duff move, though that, that actually underlines all of kings and queens history it's about carrying on her genes whichever ones they are mm. it's and she's saying to help her out in her overall aim to make sure that some of her genes <laughs> become king mm. and it might be that yeah she's sacrificing this lot to make sure that maybe she just thought that it those guys could cause enough of a kerfuffle to give half a time to come over mm. and no wonder he then takes a it takes a bit of a against her when he is mm. king so as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle said, they deprived her of all the treasures that she had, which were immense, because she was formerly very hard upon the king, her son, and did less for him than he wished before he was king. Yeah, that's true. So that's actually the official history. <laughs> uh, there are some slightly more salacious rumours about why she's deprived from power. You might want to... Uh, oh, ready my bell. Ready your app. Oops, a daisy. A couple of alternative suggestions for why Edward removes power from her in 1043. One is a rumour that Emma had invited Magnus of Norway to invade England. Oh. And was offering to provide the treasury and thus the funds for him. Mm, okay. So perhaps, you know, she knows that she's going to lose power and influence under Edward, um, whose claim she had in many ways undermined to mm. boost Arthur Canute previously. She wants to stay in power. And she'll go to any means to do that. Shows she invites the King of Norway to invade against her son. 
Well, that rather goes against my theory that her overall aim was just to get one of them in power. A later chronicler accuses her of unchastity with the Bishop of Winchester. Oh, yes, this is more like it. Brilliant. To, to prove her innocence, she had to walk over nine red-hot plowshares in the nave of Winchester Cathedral. Is that true? Did that happen? Well, thankfully, she prayed to St. Swithin to intervene, and thus he ensured that she would feel no pain, and she was able to prove her innocence. But she did have to walk across... It's probably fictional. Red-hot plowshares. Plowshares, yeah. Illustrated by William Blake later on, apparently. Oh, really? In her defence on some of this, um, the bad mother accusation is obviously a very gendered criticism. Mm. And while I think we probably have criticised the likes of Henry VIII or Edward I for their... Whoa! I'm not sure we have criticised Edward I <laughs> I may have criticised <laughs> for their dubious parenting skills. Yeah. Or, you know, later ones like George III, George V being too harsh on their sons who end up being very dissolute. Yeah. Um, it's not something that we necessarily would be docking points off kings for and it's typical in history or indeed now for a powerful woman to be criticized for her success in the male quote sphere of politics yeah. to the detriment of the more appropriate quote female sphere of motherhood mm. it's a double standard a hundred percent and emma is facing unique challenges incredibly difficult for her to sort all of this out she is twice the second wife of a king who already has sons by another woman. God, that is setting herself up to be killed, right? And in both, she has sons by two different kings. Yeah. That's a very difficult set of circumstances to navigate. When Canute, when she married Canute, Edward's only about 13. He's in no position to stake a claim to the throne against a conquering Viking. Of a North Sea empire. Exactly. Canute murdered or tried to murder all of his other dynastic rivals. So the fact that Edward and Alfred go to Normandy unmolested and are not attacked by Canute, mm. probably marrying Canute saved their lives and was the most she could possibly have done in the circumstances. Yeah, yeah. That's actually, that's excellent mothering when you're a royal like this because mm. they're like geopolitical pawns and it's about yeah. protecting them in that sense rather than sadly loving them, I guess. It's also highly unlikely she would have been willing to betray her son uh, to Magnus, who is a 19-year-old that she's never met. Maybe she holds on to the treasury a little bit in spite and also because she wants to retain her influence. Mm. But that's not the same as actually plotting no. an invasion. No, that's just, the, the, that's just the, her end story. So all of this good justification of Emma mm. and what she was doing, but perhaps not great when we're trying to give her a scandal score. No. It's tricky because I feel like this whole episode I've been on a bit of a mission to protect this person's place in history. Yeah. Um, this is a show of true neutrality that it's not about her overall score. Yeah. I'm going to give her actually quite a low... Each factor, yeah. Yeah, low score on this. So it means that she'll suffer overall, but mm. is there a, a... Give us a single event you go, that is a scandalous behaviour, or is it just... There's more just general... Well, I mean, if she did sleep with the Bishop of Winchester, that would yeah. be... Uh, I'll give her one for that. Um, you dinged at the start because you had a theory that she murdered Ethelred. Yeah, I'd take that back. <laughs> um, uh, she gets criticism at the time, like the encomium is partly there to uh, justify her behaviour mm. during the 1035 yeah. to 40. Edward, obviously, is aggrieved at her, so we see he does take action. I'll sit with one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it is tricky. It's sort of, it feels like for someone who's so active and engaged and involved in, oh, and I suppose we have the fake news and that sort of stuff. But again, it depends whether you see that as legit they tactics all do or just, it, though, don't they? Yeah. Any, any history. I feel like when we had earlier consorts with very little to say about them, I feel like we did jump on that kind of thing as we have something we can say in this category, so mm. we will give it a bit of credit. Mm. So I feel like although it's not massively scandalous, I feel like there's stuff here that we have probably given some form of score for before mm -hmm. yeah yeah so, so to balance it a bit to balance it i am going to give her i think three and a half i think okay so you're saying a one, one yeah. yeah so i'm going three and a half so that's four and a half for scandal subjectivity well so we've got one of the big things for emma really is her legacy for queenship mm. as an office which yeah. you see is still something that's been developing in the anglo-saxon period and mm. emma really is a culmination she builds on what went before with people like ed Giver and people like elfrith mm. but she takes it to a new level in 1017 when she's crowned for the second time 
with Canute, her coronation order had a number of significant changes. We see benedictions being made over the Queen, antiphons invoking her role as the Queen of the English people, and then blessings speaking of her as consors imperii, i.e. effectively sharing in the rule of the king. So mm. it's like it is setting herself up officially as this parallel position to the king in a way that we've not really seen before. Elfrith had a role, like you said, Queen of the Nuns. Mm. But this is, again, taking it to a new level. It is seeing king and queen as this partnership in ruling the country. As I imagine kings and queens were as a child. Mm. As a child, I thought kings uh, had wives and they were called queens. Mm. And they were... You had Queen Victoria, I and mean, you have a, a King Edward, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I sort of assumed that they were the King and Queen. Yeah, not, not those two, but yes. you know, and <laughs> they had the same amount of power. Mm. That's sort of what they, this is suggesting. That I guess Emma is in a way a model for the typical medieval queen that we'll be doing. You know, yeah. post ten sixty six. This is what we think a queen should be, but Emma mm. is perhaps the one that's most achieved that of all the Saxon ones mm. that we've had. Definitely, mm. very good. She's got this role which is beyond what others have had but she's also present in imagery for the very first time what? we have a contemporary image of a queen of england oh gosh now we're not looking forward to this it's not necessarily a hans holbein one in terms <laughs> of the artistic quality but nevertheless this is the frontispiece to the liber vitae for winchester we've got canute and emma placing a great cross on the altar Emma's on the left. <laughs> but we've got Emma and Canute both depicted parallel to each other. Yeah. Same sort of size. Interestingly, she's effectively on the right side of Christ. Oh, yeah. When you, when you, if Christ yeah. is that cross and yeah. he's looking at us, yeah. Directly below Mary as well. So perhaps invoking this sort of t contemporary mm -hmm. cult of Mary and oh, queenship. Yeah. This is the earliest surviving contemporary portrait of an English queen. Oh, nice. Rex fact. Yeah, and indicates, again, her significance and the significance yeah. now of queens. This yeah. isn't her image. This is the image presented by Emma and Canute. So presumably well, Canute is, you know, fully on board with her as this yeah, figure yeah. as well. But we also have her on the front cover of her own book, The Encomium. Oh, yeah, I want to, that's what I was talking about. Originally. Yeah. So if we look at her on so this. So this came out afterwards. This is a bit later. This is a few years later from 1041. Oh, that's better. Now, queenship central to the theme of the book as it is indeed to Emma the fact that it's Encomium Emmi Reginae obviously mm. putting Queen at the forefront but Emma is depicted on the front cover of her book she's wearing a crown and some leaves in her head <laughs> and some leaves she's on a throne mm. we've got the author of the book presenting it to her oh yeah a bit meta and then we've got these two <laughs> little chaps with crowns looking on who are Harthur Canute and Edward oh right very clear from this image who the most important person is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and of the two boys. Yes, one of them is smaller than the other. For those who cannot see this, i.e. everyone, the smaller chap is Edward. <laughs> she also does some good stuff for the country. Um, sort of her period with Ethelred, 1002 to 12, got a series of damaging Viking raids. Mm. And then 1013 to 17, we've got invasions, conquest, pillaging, divisions. It's a really bad time. Yeah, she didn't enjoy that time. She? she didn't enjoy that time, but Canute, with Emma, then makes an effort to try and bring things back together. So they appear um, together, as they often are, this partnership at various ceremonies seeking to restore harmony. 1020, Canute goes on a pilgrimage to the site of the Battle of Assendon that he fought with Edmund Ironside and ordered a minster of stone and lime to be built for the souls of those slain in the battle. All of them. All of them, yeah. Um, now, Emma's not mentioned in this, but her client priest, Stigand is appointed as the priest for this minster. That's oh, right. So one assumes that she's got a hand. Oh, yeah, of course. In all of this. Mm. But she definitely is involved in 1023 in the translocation of the bones of St. Elf here. So this was an Archbishop of Canterbury in Ethelred's reign who was murdered by marauding Vikings. Right. So his bones are in this very grand ceremony transferred from London to Canterbury. Wow. A sort of proper tomb of a martyr. Mm. And Emma and Hartha Canute are recorded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as being very prominent in part of the pageantry and the majesty and the public ceremony mm. Mm. for this you know, this uh, this movement of this old priest, which again is this sort of apology in effect. For all the the disruption. Yeah. Yeah, I mean a rubbish apology, but still. Now, one of your favourite things, of course, is religious oh, patronage. God. But you know, the churches are very much in need of some love because Vikings 
were not mm. traditionally always kind on churches when they chose to invade. Yeah. <laughs> They've yeah. taken a lot of kicking over the time. Emma and Canute have a reputation as great patrons and benefactors, perhaps the most lavish and widespread in their gifts until probably about the 13th century. Mm. Winchester, of course, we saw in that image, there's this cross being presented. Yeah. And it is a real cross. It was this, um, covered in gold, silver, and precious stones. She also seems to be something of a relic hunter. What? <laughs> That sounds like a uh, History Channel program. <laughs> it does a bit. She um, she purchases Saint Bartholomew uh, what, for to do what for her? Uh, from the no, his body oh. from the visiting Bishop of Benevento, and uh, he was go- just walking around with a corpse dangling off his horse. <laughs> yeah, she's like, I'll have that. Yeah, uh, she gave most of him to Canterbury, but kept the arm for herself. <laughs> and uh, when Harth- her hands, <laughs> <laughs> and when Harthur Canute was buried at Winchester. She, for his soul, gave the head of St. Valentine the Martyr. What is it with her and cutting up bodies? But that is St. Valentine as in Valentine's Day. What? He's in England? Well, other places claim to have him as well, not least Rome. Yeah. But still, yeah. interesting. Interesting, yeah. Uh, now, from about the sort of around roughly 1020, Canute and Emma set up a production system for beautiful deluxe manuscripts. Hmm. which they send off everywhere. Bindings are now lost from these uh, documents, but they would have been sumptuous, illuminated, often in gold, hmm. and uh, possibly, again, with them on the front covers. Likely, yeah. Yeah. Um, they're given to churches not just in England, but also to Germany, to Scandinavia, to France. So they're seen as patrons not just within the country, but again, on this European This is her and scale. Canute. Her and Canute, hmm. yeah. Um, and the encomium also feeds into this sense of her as part of this international cultural development. The author um, probably is from Flanders, but he's clearly very highly educated. He's familiar with classical works. Mm. The Aeneid is a clear influence uh, for the encomium. And the patronage shows a court and a woman in Emma capable of attracting some of Europe's best scholars. Mm. And we've previously always had a sort of international culture in clerical works i.e. religious sort of works, mm. but it's a bit new to have this also in secular works, which this is. This is oh, that's good. history rather than religious. Yeah. So again, it all points to her as being at the epicentre of this melting pot for Norman, Saxon, Dane, European. She is the mm. one right at the centre of all of this. And I understand that is all very good stuff. Mm. But there's a but, isn't there? The encomium, impressive as it is that she's issued this history, the fact that Arthur Canute dies a year later does kind of undermine the whole point of her having written it yeah but she they can't control that i guess because her life is this sort of constant battle and survival and conflicts mm. it's sort of one of those where you think is is it that everybody else is causing a problem or do you think mm. there's and you wonder the fact that she releases the encomium and addresses all of these obviously contemporary criticisms she obviously has these enemies at court is she actually a bit unpopular perhaps yeah, people are always getting into the wrong crowd, never mm. they acknowledging that they might be the crowd. Yeah, she's very powerful, obviously, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're loved for it. Yeah. Mm. You know, obviously her and Godwin have got a bit of beef. <laughs> yeah, oh, goodness me, I can't imagine. Really, actually, I don't feel like these are massive negatives against her, to be honest. They're sort of necessities, really, like to, mm. to have uh, battles, you have to have enemies. Yeah. And she's in a position where she can write the history, even if... Whereas in her favour we've got elevating queenship to this whole new level First image ever of a queen The way that she defines herself as a queen I mean in in her favour it's massive Queens that follow in her footsteps Mm. Can see what she achieved and see what can be done She wrote a book telling them an instruction manual effectively (laughs) I'll go for a nine Mm. Do with that what you will I think I'm tempted to go for a nine as well Mm. And I'm not. I'm sort of wondering. I'm sort of thinking about eight and a half again. I think I don't know why I've sort of honed in on that as my really pretty high, but not quite very high score. Yeah, and then <laughs> but it's all, but but then it's making me think: why not a ten? What's what's better? Uh what's better? I guess future consorts, in terms of legacies and stuff, they're doing for the country. Their role starts to be defined a little bit more about um, more sort of scholarly patronage and culture and. Well, I'll take your word on it, but I'll stick to a nine, and I'd like to raise a steward's inquiry mm. two years down the line when we finish this, whatever, about the possibility of her having a ten from me. Mm. I think I'm also going to go for a nine. Okay. I think this is excellent queenship. 
Mm. This is as good as it gets in the Saxon period. And yeah. it sets a model for the Norman and medieval queens. So that's 18 for subjectivity, which is the best that we have had thus far. Longevity. So she is initially queen consort to Ethelred from 1002 to the summer of 1013. Yeah. Which is 11 years. Okay. Ethelred then comes back. Mm. So she comes back as Queen Consort from the 3rd of February 1014 to the 23rd of April 1016, which is another 2.17 years. Mm. She is then Queen Consort to Canute, so that's Mm. a third (laughs) go, July 1017 to the 12th of November 1035, which is 18.33 years. No wonder she preferred that bit. She is Queen Mother to Hartha Canute from Mm. the 17th of March 1040 to the 8th of June 1042, Mm. 2.25 years. And then she is Queen Mother to Edward the Confessor from the 8th of June, 1042, to her death on the 6th of March, 1052, which is 9.75 years. Wow. So. Gosh. She gets full marks for her time as Queen Consort. So we add together 11, 2.17, and 18.33, which gives us a total, obviously, of... Um. 31.5 31.5 years. Yeah. That, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and then we add together the sum of her time as Queen Mother, but we mm. halve that because mm-hmm, she gets mm-hmm. partial credit. 2.25 plus 9.75 is 12. Half that, 6. So 41.5? So, so 31.5 oh. plus 6. 37.5. 37.5 years, which gives her a total score of 16.5 out of 20. Oh, that's good. It's the sixth best overall. She's also, of course, twice Queen's stepmother, but that doesn't count. Oh, too, too much. I get points for that. Dynasty, not the program. So she has five children mm-hmm. who do all survive their father, though they don't tragically all survive her. By Ethelred, she has Edward the Confessor, Alfred, and a daughter, Godgiva. Mm. And by Canute, she has Hartha Canute and Gunhilda. So that's five children, which is a total score of 15 out of 20. God, this is massive score. She's here. joint tenth. She is also, although she is dead, pivotal to a lot of the events of 1066. Oh, yes. It's her son, Edward the Confessor, who dies at the start of that year to set off the chain of events that culminates in the Battle of Hastings. It's because Emma is from Normandy that the duchy becomes interested in the English kingship, and in particular, when Edward is exiled in 1016, mm. they become interested in him. Emma, of course, is William the Conqueror's grand aunt. Yeah. So she does actually provide a bit of a link to mm. Norman. But that is that is his his link through family. That is his family link to Edward right. is through Emma. And it's Emma's legacy that leads to Edward naming William as heir in 1051 because Edward exiles Godwin in vengeance for the murder of his brother Alfred in 1036. He then invites William over for a visit and it's then that he names him heir, likely as an ally against Godwin. And of course, it's Godwin's son, Harold, who initially takes the throne. Now, the final combatant in 1066 was Harold Hardrada, and he claimed the throne following an agreement made between Magnus of Norway and Emma's other son, Harthacanute, in which Harold and Magnus named each other as heir. Now, Harold meant only in Scandinavia, but Magnus decides to interpret this as England as well. Ah, and he's Magnus's son. He's not, I think he's his brother. But when Hardrada replaces Magnus, he also decides to maintain this really dubious claim to the throne. And that's why he is there in 1066. So the tangled web of 1066 all comes back to Emma. Anyway, that gives Emma a total score of 71.5. Whoa! That's got to be the biggest yet, isn't it? It's less than Elfrith, who had 73. It's because we don't have a high scandal score for Emma. Mm. But nevertheless, 71.5 is a very high score. It's extremely high. Second place. But it's not all about the scores, of course. Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, that great achievement that we call... Rex Factor! And it feels a pretty easy case to make in her favour. Most powerful pre-conquest queen. Mm. Takes queenship to a whole new level. Mm -hmm. First image we've ever had of a queen, contemporary image. Only want to be married to two kings. <laughs> Great survival. Don't know what that noise meant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't think how. What would count against her for this? Well, we've got the succession battle that she kind of loses in a way, and then Hartha Canute has to come in and do the winning bit. Bit of fake news is she using her history and propaganda to paper over actually a lot of unsuccesses? Possibly, but it, you know. Um, bit of luck. Everyone needs a bit of luck. I can't see any reason 
all not to give it to her. I think it would be a travesty of yeah. <laughs> proportions Edgar the Peaceful could not even dream of. Yeah, 100%. It's a huge yes. It's a big yes. Emma of Normandy has got the Rex Factor. <laughs> very, very impressive. She doesn't have the uh, the top score thus far, but I think Which she's, I'm amazed uh, by. As I said, it's just because of the scandal yeah anyway let us know what you think Uh, as we said get in touch on Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page email rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com and go to rexfactor.wordpress.com read the blogs and complete the polls about which queens and uh, prince consorts later you think do or don't deserve the Rex Factor yes please Uh, and also send in your hashtag consort cards for an image oh I'm looking forward to this yeah Yeah. see if you can do better than the Libra Vitae and it's really not hard, guys. <laughs> do, a, do a stick person. With a crown. With a crown, holding a book, saying, please read my book, and it's better. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you use, and subscribe. If you'd like to support us financially... Always helpful. Helps us keep doing this. Donate monthly for bonus content. You'll join the Privy Council and get access to the Privy Chamber podcast that we record after each of these uh, main episodes. And we're going to welcome to the fold today... Shadow Marie, mm-hmm. Emma McDougall, P. Maddox, Ranald Pringle, Dusk Maiden, Pauline Bell, Catherine Yarwood, F. R. Anthony, Costume Zombie, Sarah Lynn, Bland Mike, which I guess is an alternative version of Magic Mike. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought, it, yeah, yeah, got you here. Jill 7000, Felicity, or Avax Sans, Jenna Jean McKenzie, and Hannah Fritchner. You haven't had to. Do many um, funny ones. No, people week. have been able to leave their names. Yeah, it's quite useful. Yeah, well, thank you, one and all. It genuinely helps us keep doing this. Mm. We wouldn't have been able to afford the equipment otherwise. And for Hannah, this is actually a birthday gift. Oh right, Pretty council membership. So we've got a message for Hannah for her have birthday. I? No, no, I, we have. We've oh got one god, Phew. <laughs> happy birthday, Hannah. <laughs> Wishing the happiest of birthdays to longtime fan Hannah Fritchner, and thank you for bringing Rex Factor into our lives. Even if we disagree about Mary Queen of Scots, at least we're all ride or die for Henry II. <laughs> we miss you already and can't wait to see all the pics as you explore the British Isles during your extended stay in Scotland this year. Hey, love you from Aaron and Karen. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, what nice chaps. So, thank you very much to all of you, and uh, happy birthday uh, to Hannah. We are moving towards and into 1066 we are coming towards the end of the saxons familiar territory then indeed but until next time goodbye for me cheerio